Before the show starts, several of our listeners have been curious about the work I do at OnSite. So I wanted to give you a quick glimpse into what I get to be a part of. OnSite's an emotional health retreat center on a beautiful 250-acre ranch just outside of Nashville. We've got some of the best minds in the therapeutic space that come and create a safe space, honestly, for people just to reconnect to who they are and who they're becoming. And if you want to learn more, you can visit OnSiteWorkshops.com or follow us on Instagram and socials at, at @OnSiteWorkshops. The work y'all are doing there is so important, and I feel so grateful that I've gotten to experience it firsthand. I really hope everyone gets to experience this sort of healing because we're all so deserving of it. Thanks, my friend. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the show. What's amazing to me is I'm a person who I thought had done a lot of shadow work, had really gone inside confronted a lot of things. I've been through a wild ride these last few years, kind of religious faith transitions, loss of community, gaining a new community. And I thought I really knew myself. And what's been fascinating in this this process of trauma therapy has been realizing how far our brains can go to protect us Mm -hmm. and how small a part of us our conscious awareness is. Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh Come on, someone, take off your mask It's nice to me Today on the podcast, we welcome Mike McCarg, better known as Science Mike. He is an author, podcaster, and speaker who travels the world helping people understand the science of life's most profound and mundane experiences. His best-selling debut book, Finding God in the Waves, has helped people in transition understand faith in the 21st century. Mike's the host of Ask Science Mike and co-hosts the Liturgist podcast with his friend Michael Gunger. He's recently appeared before sold-out audiences in New York, Chicago, and London, and is a contributor to Relevant Magazine, Storyline, BioLogos, and The Washington Post. This interview was... Wow. I don't know how to describe it, so I'm not going to say a lot. I I know it's going to reveal itself as you guys listen, but I was intimidated, honestly, going into this. I've gotten to know Science Mike over the years, and he is so smart, but he did what he does. He brought this beautiful intellect with this huge heart, put all of us at ease, and he went there. I cannot wait. Those of you that are Liturgist fans and Ask Science Mike fans, but those of you that just know and appreciate this man, you're going to love this conversation. So we are so excited to bring Mike to the podcast today. I'm so happy to be here today. Uh, me as well. I got to meet you and knew you prior to knowing you like the rest of the world knows you, mm. meaning as a you know, podcasting legend, best-selling author, <laughs> all this stuff that you are. Oh my God. I know, I know, I know, but it's true. And I remember a dinner that we sat down in, I think we were in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. It was prior to heading on a retreat with some friends, and you were just about to step out of your world and go full-time into this. 
and that was just what like three years ago that was not long ago mm. and it's i mean the ride yeah. it, to watch what's happened since then is pretty remarkable yeah it has been a wild experience for sure i am both grateful and excited to talk mm. with you in this format and i feel a lot of anxiety mm. to talk to you in this format we talked a couple of days ago and i think i told you i said this is what will be one of the only interviews where I'm talking to somebody who is not in my profession, but easily knows twice as much as I do <laughs> about my profession. <laughs> no. But, you know, it's true. I mean, the people that, that listen to us also listen to you. And I just, I, I also appreciate what you know and what you bring. Hmm. But one of the things I'm excited about, and you do a lot of this, meaning you blend your personal story into your professional pursuits is that's what our audience loves, is they get to know people the way that we're affirming you, like, man, mm -hmm. this guy's one of the smartest, one of the most connected, plugged, all those things. And we love to introduce people to the human side of the person behind the personality. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we were hoping to go today, is just talk to you a little bit more about, man, who is the guy that is doing what you're doing and spreading all this goodness in the world? Yeah. One of the things that you talked about in the liturgist gathering that I haven't been able to shake... Um, as you talked about this year, you've started doing some new kind of counseling. And I, I registered a lot. I'm a I'm a seven and I'm a mind. Like we're the only number on the Enneagram that's disconnected from our heart. And I've just in this last season began connecting. But you talked about how you were explaining something how Hillary had said, you know, you're so special. and you're. So, I can't remember the affirmation that she gave you, but you were talking about it in your counseling. And your counselor was like, so how does that make you feel? I would love to hear a little bit about that experience was so, I was just, I could barely breathe. I was crying so hard because I, I was so touched by that. Easily the hardest thing for me about my work now is... I don't do anything I do for affirmation or even to be known. Yeah. Those are not only things I don't care about. I'm actually pretty opposed to them. I'm a podcaster and an author because those are tools I can use to help people who feel lonely or isolated or hurt or misunderstood and encourage them and to let them know they're not the only person who struggles. And I'm, I, I, I actually work really hard at not crafting or curating a polished public image. I, I oppose anything kind of in the machine. I live in Los Angeles. And when people try to do things that would make me look great, I don't want to do those things. Yeah. When I was on Instagram, I mostly posted pictures of my bald spot just because I think the sheen we present in the world is so often so harmful. Mm -hmm. And why that's hard is me taking this intentional approach to make a decision that above all, I will be honest and vulnerable with the public has created a situation where I get accolades and affirmations constantly. And it is much easier for me to read hate mail and believe it than to read affirmations and believe them. Yeah. And uh, Hillary McBride is a dear friend and a co-host and a colleague on our program. I actually geek out being able to call someone like Hillary a colleague because yes. that's way out of my <laughs> league professionally. But 
she's a constant source of uh, encouragement and affirmation for me. And the problem with Hillary encouraging me is I respect her opinion so much. So I get stuck in this cycle where Hillary said something nice about me, which can't be true. Because, you know, I have a lot of shame from a lot of childhood trauma. But it's Hillary, and she's brilliant and honest. Yes. A lot of people, if they say nice things, I can say, well, that's just a person who just says nice things all the time, performatively. But Hillary is, is, is startlingly genuine as a person. And so I had to kind of process through what that meant. So I've done a lot of therapeutic work in my life out of necessity, but I've always done talking therapy, traditional talking therapy. I've done cognitive behavioral therapy to get me out of rough spots. And I became aware kind of more recently that I had uh, significant amounts of unprocessed trauma. And I, I became aware of that because I got in enough safe friendships that as my guard started to come down, not only with other people, but with myself, that these things that I was keeping down started to emerge, not because life was bad, but because life was good. Yes. And Hillary saying that I was special and that I had a lot of challenges and the way that I redeemed them to help others inspired her meant I had to confront the content of that message and the fact that when people say things like that to me, I have a an instinct to physically recoil. I feel my body start to sh- kind of shut down uh, in a way that I would kind of understand in a polyvagal response as a dorsal branch response that's kind of a, a faint or freeze reaction. Mm. And so I would had to sit with my trauma therapist. And what's weird about trauma therapy is I'm like, I'm a really good storyteller. So I like talking therapy because I can tell a story. Sometimes I can make therapists cry. Mm -hmm. And then as I talk, I'll have some insight. And then I feel great. And my therapist feels like they're great at their job. It's wonderful. But it wasn't helping with the panic attacks I was having. It wasn't helping with all these things. So with this trauma therapist... I tell him what Hillary said, and it makes me feel weird. And then I get ready to tell all these stories. And my trauma therapist says, stop. How do you feel? And then I start to tell a story, and he says, no, just feel it. And so then I have to sit there while my body does weird shit. Just really strange, completely separate from my cognition, you know, my my thinking brain is sitting there perplexed and confused, like what is happening with the organism? Hmm. And I had to become aware that any time someone gives me affirmation, it triggers shame. And underneath the shame is fear. And the fear is, which is so common to so many people, is that I'm an imposter, that I'm What people like about me is pretend Mm. that if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me because I'm unlovable. And when Hillary or you or you say something kind to me, my executive brain, my rational brain goes, thank you. That's wonderful. 
But the deep parts of my brain, coiled around my brain stem, will they remember purple nurples and swirlies and atomic wedgies and being held down with people standing on my chest and literally dribbling a basketball on the side of my face? And they say, these people may be saying these things and you, cognitive brain, might be going along with it, but I the most ancient part, and in many ways the most wise part of you, because I've been around for billions of years, I know other people aren't safe, and I know other people can't love you. And that means the only safe thing to do when people are kind is to escape and be alone, because alone may be unhappy, but at least it's safe. Mm. And that has had so many implications in my life. You know, I'm a good friend to people when we're together. But when I'm not with someone, I'll never reach out to them. Mm. I won't reach out to friends. I won't reach out to my parents. I won't reach out to my wife. Uh, For that same reason, my my animal brain is, is afraid of rejection always. And I don't know. I just I feel like I, I need to make even a bigger effort to make people who follow my work aware. I sound intelligent because I have high verbal acuity, but in a in a very real way, I struggle with some of the most basic aspects of being alive and living in a way that I think very few people understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keeping it real. If um, sorry, and there I just went to a defensive reaction automatically. I apologize. If uh, in the beginning when I was checking in, um, which I professionally kind of live in that space of not cognitive, but more the limbic side, and always you know what's your anchor emotion, how big is it, where is it, and your, all those things. But um, if you were to check in now, based on how far we've come, you know, starting with affirmation. You just shared a little bit of your story, knowing we've got some more runway to talk about stuff. What would be, what would your emotion be right now or feeling? I feel much better. Another thing about me is I use that kind of radical vulnerability as a talisman to protect myself. Yeah, me too. You know what I mean? So it's like, I said you said these kind things and then I didn't invalidate them. But I described in great detail why that's psychologically painful for me, which like subtly influences you maybe not to say those things for the rest of the show. And in a way I don't even mean to. I both create a genuine connection and influence the conversation a little bit. And those are the things I'm trying to become aware of so that I can do them less. Mm. You know, like how can I be honest and vulnerable, but overcome the ways in which my brain has learned to do that in a way that's defensive and reactive? I'd love it if you'd be willing to tell us what it was like. Like what did you start hearing when you started getting quiet and you started remembering what was that experience like in that room? Oh, gosh, it's so weird. I've always just assumed I have, well, I I know I've actually been tested. I have some pretty significant 
impairments with memory. So I just always assumed I didn't have childhood memories like other people do. Whenever I try to think back anywhere past kind of early high school, there's just a a foggy haze. I can't remember anything. And when my therapist said, what are you feeling in your body? It's always a struggle for me to not immediately verbalize those, describe those physical sensations, even if not out loud to myself. But when I sat and just kind of felt what was happening physically, and then that begins to relate to emotional states, and then they start to escalate and... It's very common for folks in the West to be pretty bad at emotional regulation and to have a kind of a phobic relationship with some feelings. So we usually kind of bypass and leave that because we're afraid if our sadness or our anger, if we let them out, they will grow so much that they consume and overwhelm us. But, you know, I've been taught that in this safe environment not to worry about that. Like, you're, don't worry, you're not going to have a psychotic break if that's what you're concerned for. So I sit there and I let this kind of shame lead to fear. And then from the fear, grief. And I didn't even understand what I could be grieving. Like, what, what, is, what is there to grieve? Hillary said a nice thing about me. And the strange, really the strangest, most disorienting part of trauma therapy to me is the way that you can start to have just like memories appear. You didn't know were there. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sitting here on my therapist's couch in my body feeling, whatever that means. It's still so weird to me. And all of a sudden, it's like I could see in pretty remarkable, vivid detail my kindergarten classroom which I, I would have never been able to tell you like what part of the building it was in, but I remembered it. I mean everything about that room, some of the posters on the walls. And it was a particular moment I remembered. The teacher took me away from the class and put me in the timeout part of the room, but she told me and the class, the whole class was in timeout, and I wasn't. Because I was a weird kid. I was a genuinely bizarre child. And the other children were making fun of me so much that the teacher couldn't maintain order in the classroom. And she was so obviously overwhelmed and confused and like didn't know what she should do. And so she separated me from everyone. And... I remember I felt kind of sorry for her, but it became very normal for me to have to sit sit by myself because the other kids were so aggrieved by my presence, I guess. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. And I just started sobbing. And I just cried, and, and uh, my therapist is... It, he just like when you're when you're sobbing, he just kind of like encourages you, but like waits. He doesn't try to comfort you or, or stop it. And then after all that happened, he kind of he said, "So what'd you see?" And then I get to tell a story, which is quite nice. <laughs> so I told him that story, 
And he said, how much was life like that for you? And I was like, well, just from kindergarten to like eighth grade. And then he helped draw the connection for me. He said, so you wonder why you can't reach out to people and you wonder why it's difficult for you to accept affirmation. He said, but your nervous system learned through repeated trauma that other people aren't safe and that you're not worthy of love. And he said, so even if you had a good relationship with your parents, like that's not going to counteract all those years of, you know, really severe bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, when I wrote my first book, a couple of the stories I put in there, my publisher was like, we don't know if we can run this because they were so upsetting to read. What's amazing to me is I'm a person who I thought had done a lot of shadow work, had really gone inside, confronted a lot of things. I've been through a wild ride these last few years, kind of religious faith transitions, loss of community, gaining a new community. And I thought I really knew myself. And what's been fascinating in this this process of trauma therapy has been realizing how far our brains can go to protect us Mm. and how small a part of us our conscious awareness is, which is kind of disorienting at first. Mm. And then there's like this other thing. I don't think our species evolved with a set of tools to deal with media culture, either as a recipient or a listener or as a creator, because I can't imagine any pre-agrarian context for a member of our species to meet 1,200 people a week. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like the there's this other piece for me that is part of it, I just have to go to therapy to like, I talked to my therapist and said, I feel really weird this week. He said, what happened? I said, well, I was in Nashville and I hugged like 400 people in a row. And he said, that sounds like an amazing experience. And I want to be really honest. I have no training for what you should feel like after hugging 400 people. And I don't think it exists. Yeah. Because it was like, I came back and it was like kind of wonderful, but I was in some way, it was a rough week. It was beautiful for everyone, but some people, there was a major release of grief or fear or shame in that moment. And then we, the hosts of the podcast, just sort of absorbed it. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, And so there's just like all those factors at play of one, learning about yourself. And then I think in a real way, like we don't have a good way to talk about our conversation to have about the impacts that celebrity culture or public work have Mm. on human psychology. And we can talk about parasocial relationships and that's helpful, but it's too easy to erase people who are in the public eye as having it good or living the dream. And there are some truly wonderful things, but there's also some very complicated things. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Hey, it's Miles, and I want to take a quick minute to tell you about our friends at Nisolo. They are the sponsors of this week's episode, and they are a sustainable shoe and accessory brand that is committed to intentional design, ethical manufacturing, and fair pricing. Each Nisolo purchase provides a living wage and helps to combat climate change. Nisolo actually owns and operates its own sustainable factory in Peru, and they are offsetting their production's carbon emissions by protecting trees from deforestation in the nearby Peruvian Amazon. In 2018 alone, Nisolo customers have helped save more than 54,000 trees from being uprooted through their purchases. That's like the size of 62 baseball fields. It's really unreal. We have known Nisolo for years. Ruthie actually introduced me to this brand, and now I'm a loyal customer, and I love their shoes, as does my wife and family. We had the pleasure recently of interviewing Patrick Woodyard, Nisolo founder and CEO at their headquarters in Nashville, and I got to tell you, my respect for this brand and their mission went up exponentially after hearing more about the heart behind this effort. You can listen to our conversation with him on the season two bonus episode to learn more about Nisolo products and ethos, or you can try them out for yourself because Nisolo is offering unspoken listeners 25% off their purchase at nisolo.com when you use code unspoken at checkout. That's N-I-S-O-L-O.com and enter unspoken at checkout for 25% off your purchase of ethically made shoes and bags. I was at San Quentin last week and it was fascinating to feel the dynamic uh, inside with roughly 4,000 inmates. And it was one of the places, and I've been to other places in the world where I've experienced this, where you feel unprocessed trauma energetically just in the Mm. air. And you see it through like significant segregation on display, more so than you'd ever see really anywhere else, invisible lines based on where you can survive. And it makes total sense because you think about they're all in there and they're all in the reptile part of their brain. Mm -hmm. So everybody's in survival mode. Mm -hmm. Well, I met with this one young guy who, um, trauma survivor, made some mistakes. Um, he'll get, I think he'll get a good shot at getting out in a couple of years. And he is someone who can, I think, rehabilitate. But we were talking about what got him there. And I said, what does safety look like for you? And he said, well, it's not people. And I said, say more about that. And he said, people, I can't trust people because they've been a constant source of pain for me. Mm -hmm. And that was so revealing because, and I appreciate what you described about trauma therapy because it you described it beautifully for people that have never gone through it, that, sh- that I hope get an opportunity to experience it is that it's all those things. It's just, unfortunately the construct in which we have to offer it. I don't love that's in, in the outpatient setting mm. that you have to go do this for two hours or an hour at a time and then come out of life, go into that, come back into life. <laughs> it's that's, pretty jarring. It's jarring. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And I'm not saying that it's not valuable because it is, but it's, it's just tough to do. My hope is, is that we can take, what seems like this abstract thing that's contained in a psychological safe setting for people to go there to try to rewrite parts of their stories and make that part of the human experience Mm -hmm. so that every conversation turns into a place that feels psychologically safe Mm -hmm. for us to be able to emote and develop emotional literacy. Because I agree with you. I do that. I am a tough client therapeutically for similar reasons that you described. And I'm just curious if we could, if we were to slow this down mm-hmm. and 
and try to identify, like, could we curate that? Could we see into not the, um, the thinking side of Mike, but the feeling side of Mike? In a, in a respectful way, I'm not trying to take you mm-hmm. somewhere like you might go with the therapist that you trust, just to get to know and see a different part. And maybe the invitation is, what, is, what does safety look like for you? Tough question. I sent some portion of my book off to my publisher, my next book, last week. And then I've been traveling and writing I haven't taken a day off in months. So my wife, Jenny, said, you are not working on anything this weekend. Saturday and Sunday, you will do no work, no questions, no debate. You are not working this weekend. And I was pretty resistant, but when my wife is adamant, I will lose that battle. So I spent some time with the family. But then after I felt like I had enough kind of family time to have been present, I snuck into my office and I, uh, this is not good radio. I'm just going to be honest. Um, fired up some virtual servers and configured a theoretical database configuration I'd been thinking about. And I know that sounds bizarre, but I started my sense of self-worth in the computer sciences. Mm. I I taught myself to program when I was seven. If everything I know about science fit in a bucket everything I know about computing would fit in an Olympic size swimming pool and for some reason with my learning challenges computers have always been like the friend I could always trust to never let me down Mm. to never betray me to never confuse me and so like when I need to feel I'm tired even in some way like my family being with my wife and children has a small tax associated with it and if I do something that's just for me to feel safe and feel like I belong, I'm going to open a terminal window and I'm going to start writing some code mm. because that's a situation where nothing unexpected will ever happen. Mm. And if a problem comes up with a set of computing systems, you can bet your ass I can solve it. Mm. It's weird, but that's that is my refuge. That's the only time I actually feel like my guard is completely down. I don't know. I'm always in search for like who am I really? And the times I feel the most myself is when I'm alone in my office writing code or or building a server platform or when I'm on stage speaking honestly. Mm. And those are the only times I kind of just feel like safe and at ease. Uh, and like nothing I'm doing is performance. It's not weird. Uh, it's really, <laughs> it feels weird. It, it, well, the reason I say it's not weird, if, I would say it was weird if it was a one-off. That might count. But it's it's one of the most common answers I've gotten from trauma survivors. Not programming specifically, but just what safety look like for you? Time with me. Wow. 
And if you think about it, based on what I shared about the young man is people have been a constant source of pain for me. And it may not be current, but it doesn't matter. Historical is also, is constantly present. Uh, if there were a person, and it could be, if you were to identify like who, this would be the safest person for me. It might be your wife, it might be your kid, it might be a friend. If there were a person in that scenario with you watching, uh, just as a bystander participating in, how would it change that? <laughs> would ruin it. Hmm. I won't go into code in front of people. Hmm. Uh, because no if, because one. if I did, say more, finish that sentence. I would feel less vulnerable taking all my clothes off. Hmm. Like my, I won't let someone use my phone unlocked. If you were like, "Hey, can I go on your computer real quick?" I'd be like, "No." <laughs> under no circumstances that is a line that i miles i can't even tell you why i'm yeah, just telling you like i can't someone can't be there when i'm with a machine like really in the machine hmm. i freeze like literal panic attack hmm. if someone tries to look over my shoulder while i'm working well i Ask that because I can relate to elements of what you're describing that feel safe. Uh, I'm both someone who has done a lot of my own trauma work and I'm in on the professional side of we facilitated a lot of it. For me, it was time with, with animals and particularly spending time at a barn. And I always did that with one living being and it was a dog. And as long as I had my pup with me, all was good. I got challenged by a mentor slash really wise uh, clinician. Could you invite the safest person or one safe person into that activity and try it and see what it, and I said the same thing. I said, that's going to completely suck and it's going to ruin <laughs> <laughs> what's sacred to me. Why would I want to give that up? And she said, what if you could look at it like you're not giving it up, you're just sharing it. And what I didn't recognize was that sharing something that was so sacred to me over time once i worked worked through the awkwardness of it it began to normalize it in a way that it didn't feel like something was being taken it felt like something was being received mm. and it slowly started helping me be seen a little more a little more and a little more and last night i had an opportunity to speak and it wasn't it, it, as big as I don't think what y'all were describing. And I didn't get a chance to see that as your national event, but it was big enough where I had a line of people that wanted to talk to me afterwards. And it was, it was all uh, affirming mm -hmm. of what they experienced, what they felt. They wanted to share parts of their story with me. And it was uh, from somebody who's worked my tail off to be able to receive and hear certain things about me that I know that are true. And not because I thought there was something wrong with it. I just had other people telling me that you reject affirmation mm -hmm. in a very subtle, creative way, changing the subject, doing your thing. And what they saw as a threat was that to never be seen, meaning affirming is one way to be seen, you're going to miss out on connection. And mm -hmm. I think you know the science behind connection. Mm -hmm. And you'll get it in other ways. But I got active about art. I got to fix that. I've got to figure out how to do that. And last night, I was still uncomfortable. 
15 years into this process, I was still uncomfortable hearing some of the things that I heard. But at the end of the day, when I was processing and riding back with my friends, despite the discomfort, there was nothing I rejected. Hmm. And I received every word that was said, and it was meaningful. And I walked away from that, not overanalyzing what I said, but feeling connected through the experience. And it was it struck me that you described two wildly different experiences. One is alone programming. One is on stage in front of all those people. But yet somehow you've been able to carve out a way that they feel the same. You're in total control when you're on stage. Total. It has always been like pretty effortless for me to make a room feel whatever I desire for them to feel. Mm. And what is that mostly? Like if you went into a room, what do you hope they leave with feeling-wise, emotion-wise? Well, I, it's, I don't know ahead of time. I walk into that room open, and I try to kind of feel what the emotional center gravity is for that room. What does this completely unique, we'll never be in a room together again group of people need today? And then I try to offer that. If people are, I sense, uncomfortable with sadness and grief, then I'm probably going to take them into some sadness and grief. And I might use humor to uh, give them support posts along that road. But I'm probably going to try to walk off the stage with more tears. If this is a group of people who have been disenfranchised and hurt in some way, then I'm probably going to lean stronger into making them feel seen and known and affirmed. I don't actually know how it works because I have autism spectrum disorder. So in in many ways, body language and and people confuse and confound me. Hmm. But something about when I get a mass of 30 or 50 or 500 or 1,000 people, I can read emotional energy in that setting in a way I can't even hear across this table. Wow. And I've always just kind of imagined that I have a antenna and I turn the gain up and I just kind of feel what the room has. And then as I talk, um, I've built, this is weird, but I built a, a branching system of test statements that I see what the reaction I get from a room is. And then I can usually, in in about five minutes, figure out like where this room is. And then while I'm talking, build my prescription plan for that room Mm. and then take them where I think they need to go. And uh, what I like about that, I guess the reason I feel me, is if I experience my emotions for the healing of other people then I feel like I'm allowed to have my feelings. Yep. So it's like their need enables me to get in touch with myself in a way that otherwise feels inappropriate or prohibitive. Mm. But you're describing what every teacher, speaker, helping professional, author, what I think we're all after unconsciously, mm-hmm. but most don't know it. Mm-hmm. The thing that we facilitate, the thing that we speak is the thing that we most long to hear or experience, or maybe don't know how to experience. But my experience with you is that the way you facilitate what you're after is for people to be known Mm -hmm. and to be seen. Mm -hmm. You're quite good at it. And I'm going to affirm you, and I'm okay with you being uncomfortable with it. Um, Same. 
and I also respect that if the the comfort gets to a place where you could boundary and be like, you know what, we're good, we you know, I'll pull mm-hmm. back. Meaning, I don't know how to tell this story without doing it. We met at a retreat that you would not have known, but I felt terribly uncomfortable to be at. Meaning, there were all these. I'm just going to say it. It was all these faith-based leaders, mm-hmm. and out of everybody there, master communicators, wonderful people doing great things, there was one person that made me feel known and okay in that space. And I'm a lot like you in that I do relationships well in front of somebody, mm-hmm. and I don't do well after that. Mm-hmm. That's why my wife and I have this good tandem thing that when we meet really good people we want to be in relationship with, I usually get them to the table, and then she follows up with them. And she's good at friendship. Mm-hmm. I'm good at acquaintance. Mm-hmm. Hence why we really haven't talked since we met. I mean, maybe a time or two. Yeah. Um, but you were the person of everybody there who made me feel known in that environment. Mm. Only because I felt if they really know who I am and know what I believe, they'll know I don't belong in this group. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you were vocal about feeling the same thing. You said, I, why am I here? I don't even know why I got invited. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. What I discovered was most everybody there felt like an outcast, even mm-hmm. the ones that were insiders. But because you were vocal and honest about it, you allowed me to get vocal and honest about it. And I had a little bit of a facilitation role, meaning they said, hey, I want mm-hmm. you to do this, this. And I, before I got up there, had I not talked to you, I was getting ready to perform and speak the language I knew that would be accepting of me. And mm-hmm. I scratched it all and got honest about who I was. And I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I belonged. And I built some beautiful relationships out of that that are still existing today. When I read more of the Bible and study it, I get more skeptical and turned off about Christianity. It scares me to death to say that. Never mm-hmm. said it out loud, mm-hmm. but you've said it mm-hmm. a lot. You actually said, hey, I read it. The more I read it was the season I actually went towards atheism. That's right. I never heard anybody say that. I didn't think you could. I didn't think there was permission to say that. Hmm. So you had this beautiful gift to be known in sitting in front of you for 20 minutes, and hopefully we'll get more time together. But I can't help but long to be a mirror for you to get a little bit back of what you so freely give to me and everybody else. Hmm. You are. But we could do more, too. Yeah. I mean, part of my problem is, uh, like at that retreat, there's only a handful of people who I've talked to since the retreat. But in my brain, those are all really good friends of mine. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I have this pattern that kind of prohibits people from being a mirror in that I don't experience the same fading of relationship that other people do, mm. which I've, I've heard is somewhat more common for people on the spectrum in that like if we become friends in my brain, that we're friends until I die. And it doesn't occur to me that, like, for most people, friendship is a relationship that's maintained. And that has made me, 
and and the I mean, I just felt so understood as you described. I'm good at acquaintance. Mm. I have the same cycle. Like uh, I'm the reason people come over the first time. The only reason they ever see me again is because they get to know and fall in love with my wife. Mm. And I have to even with Jenny. She has to remind me, hey. I need attention, I need communication, I need relation. It's not that we said I do in the year 2000 and, and we're still good now. I need like an ongoing relationship. And I think she's finally, it was actually freeing for her to learn that I'm autistic because she's like, oh, no, you literally relate to people in a fundamentally different way than I do. And I think that's given her the permission to say, I need these things, can we meet in the middle? Mm. And it's also helping me learn, I can still do what I'm great at, the face-to-face moment, but one of the main reasons I'm doing trauma therapy is to get over my social withdrawal instinct Mm. so that I can honor other people's intention and friendship Mm. and that I can bridge that gap. I can make them feel as close as I think we already are. One of my closest friends, she was the best woman in my wedding. <laughs> On the men's side, it was awesome. Is she's um, she's German, uh, but she's been here for a long time in the States. But she views friendship very different from me. And we're very different. She's very straight, shooter direct. She's not real emotional. She's sensitive and caring, but we're just different. And we met and... We, I thought we hit it off pretty fast. I was very, she's well-respected in her space and just awesome, and we just got on good. Well, three months after we met, I entered. we were walking down the street in Nashville getting coffee, and I introduced her to two other friends that met us walking down the street, and I said, I want you to meet my good friend, Marianne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she stopped me right in front of my friends, and she said, we're not friends. And I, <laughs> I, I yeah, I was <laughs> like, sweating. I was like, what? And... She said, Americans treat friendship like it's not, there's nothing sacred about it. And she said, I'll let you know when we become friends. She said, but I don't think you truly become friends until you've known somebody for about a year and you've spent enough time with them to get to know them. Two things happened in that moment. One, I thought, whoa, I just learned something about friendship, mm. a different perspective. Two, that scares me to death and I'll probably never be friends with you. Wow. And wow. Now, and now six years later she and I both have proved that theory wrong because I've let her into some of the most intimate moments in my life. She stood by me when my knees were trembling and just, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm someone that can, is repulsed by it and can do it. And when I hear you, it's not, I don't think you're not someone. And I appreciate you identifying things that you know about yourself, like being on the spectrum. You know, if we were to get into the, I know you, professional on the Enneagram and all these other things that would basically determine traits about us. I just want to make sure that we don't see you based on that. That's mm. not, we're not over identified. There's more to Mike than these basic things. It helps us understand you more, but I think we don't sustain sacred moments until we interrupt them. Mm. Mm. I've experienced that over and over again that what feels sacred to me should evolve. And mm. it doesn't evolve often until I share it. So there's a part of me, it doesn't have to be me, it could be someone you know better than me, that I would really love to see or experience one of your sacred moments. Mm. Mm. Even in, in meaning even 
the programming that you said it would ruin it? <sighs> Something to work toward. <laughs> it seems like unfathomable. Mm. I mean, you did say one thing, like my dog Ruby, she's got an all she's access in? pass. Yeah. And she's a great companion because if she looks at the screen, I know for a fact she has no idea what any of it means. You know, dogs make such good companions because you never question what are the conditions of our relationship. It's mm. like, well, my condition is let's just be together as much as possible. Mm. That's my desire. But even, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll have to think about it because Jenny, like when she comes in, I'm always like, you know, you'd think she's catching me looking at something horrible and pornographic, but it's just literally like, no, don't look at my work. And even like working on the Liturgist podcast, mm. Michael and I are really similar. He and I go off to our individual towers, make things by ourselves, and then bring them back together and assemble them. But, you know, even even Michael, it would be horrifying for me to imagine him seeing seeing me actually work. And I, I, you know, I've never made that connection before this conversation. That's like a really new perspective for me. That's uh, definitely something I'll reflect on. Miles does this a lot, and I've, I really enjoy it, and I've learned so much. But he'll say, like, so finish this sentence. If someone sees you in that intimate, sacred moment that you've never, ever, ever, ever let them into, what will happen? They will think that I'm not any good at programming. And how will that feel? Like I am worthless. Hmm. That's the central strut of my sense of identity is good at computers. The absolute seemingly unquestionable notion because the outcome of my work is undeniably good. The process to me seems rough and messy Vulnerable. and broken and yeah. Mm. Broken. Yeah. And I'm not making a case for there's nothing the wrong with your process. I'm not making a case for spending time alone is not beautiful and sacred in its own right. I just think at sharing our sacred moments uh, gives them oxygen and allows us to be seen and connected at a deeper level and ultimately adds value, even though it's terrifying in the beginning. I know the more I think about it, you're right. You know, I've, I tell people I've been on a multi year journey of killing shame, and I have been. But every time you think you've like got it all, no, there's there's more. There's somewhere else that you're you're terrified of being seen. And and, and I would challenge is not the right word. I guess more invite because that was my tactic around. And I've done a lot of shame work. It's a big narrative for me that still shows up. Uh, Christy, who I work with every day, watched me go through it last night, pre-talk and post-talk. My shame narrative had to be processed or I was a complete idiot and everything I said was meaningless. And so I had to do that. And that's okay. I've learned that that's just a normal part of my process. Totally okay. But I i don't try to kill any emotion anymore. The good mm. ones, the bad ones. I just mm. try to uh, change my relationship with them. And it was so much more obtainable. The idea that shame may always be in the room, but that I get a little bit more of a volume knob on how loud or how quiet it is. And the more I have talked to it, enrolled it, gotten to know the layers of it, figured out where it came from, it's kind of got a seat at the table. It's mm. just a really small chair. Mm. Some days. 
some days it flips the table over and <laughs> makes madness. But I'm always trying to figure out. I always feel like shame is uh is a mask for some other feeling. So when I say I kill shame, what I mean is I look at it and I say, "Who sent you? Hmm. What what feeling sent you so that I wouldn't feel it? Hmm. Uh, is it anger? Is it fear? Is it disgust? Is it is it sadness? What? Who sent you? Because let me deal with that. Yeah, and I've I've gotten pretty good at it for all of them except for anger, <laughs> which is still. In one of my last therapy sessions, we started talking calmly about anger, and I passed out on the. <laughs> the I literally fainted wow. on the couch just because we were talking about whether anger was okay or not. So, uh, it might be more work there. What? Explain that. Why does that hit you on such a core level? I know. Mm-hmm. I can't say it on the internet. You got it. Honor that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I, you know, even on working on my book and I was wrestling with, with that narrative and I, I just wrote, I know why, but dear reader, I have to keep that from me. Yes. Oh, I honor that. Yeah. And I'm also so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <sighs> yeah. Even though I've learned to cry and to be comfortable with tears, all of that part of me right now, there's so much energy there. It's like I, I can't even. Yes. It starts and then everything yes. shuts back down. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's the heart of my therapeutic right work right now. Yes. Oh, you're so deserving of that work. <laughs> you are so deserving of that work. It's so, I love Miles always talks about it's that work is so beautiful because it's coming back to so much. It's so right with you. So good. Mm. So good. Mm. So deserving. So worthy. Not what's wrong with you, but what's so right with you. Mm. My hope was every time I've ever listened to you, I learned like 900 things and like posh and paws and trying to figure out, say, oh man, what was that? What was that? What was that? And I just wondered what it would be like if we could just sit and see one another mm-hmm. and not walk away with um, all these insights and tools. And uh, and I, I have to say, I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Moments of it, you know, as as they are for me, I always feel awkward a little bit with the, the, the space and the silence, but it's... Um, it's what I hoped we'd get an opportunity to do. Mm. And like you've shared before too, I sometimes can do things in this kind of format as opposed to if it were just me and you sitting. And, and I, I'm not sure why that is. I think you can control the narrative a little bit like what you were talking about when you were speaking. So it feels mm-hmm. a little safer for me to go there. And I can't help but make up that part of the reason I might try to go there and share parts of my story and invite you into parts of yours is is getting an unconscious need met from listeners I don't even know that may be listening and mm. hearing something because I'm mm. wanting them to get value out of it. I'm sure all that is at play. Uh, but at the end of the day, I just, I want more of this. Mm. I don't have a lot of it. Mm. A lot of times when I sit, we're just talking about what I know or mm. what they know mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how what we know is going to evolve us in some way. And I just kind of get exhausted with it. I like it and I get exhausted with it. And this 
conversation feels more aligned with the work and the message that I talk about all the time. I just don't practice enough. Yeah. I know I'm there when I don't know what to say. Yeah. Like when I'm over here thinking, I don't have anything smart to say right now. <laughs> I forgot we were podcasting completely. And I've grown very comfortable with silence. And I've reached a point in my life where it's like, I feel like I've learned so much about so many things that for the first time, I actually have some conception of how many things I don't know and will never know that are vital and important and insightful. And I've become very comfortable with my almost total ignorance. And one thing I've found in the last year and a half, you know, I live in Los Angeles. People call it the land of fruits and nuts. <laughs> but sign me up. <laughs> there is an a cultural openness here yes. to doing what we just did here at dinner mm. and at lunch. Yes. And for a place that has a reputation for being vapid and shallow. I feel like the last 18 months, I've had real community for the first time mm. in my life. Wow. Yes. Oh, I love that. Where I can sit with people and it's not about what I know or who I am or what I can do, but you can sit with people and you can, you can share and you can feel. Mm-hmm. And there's, no, there's hardly any LA natives. So everybody ran away from some culture that constricted them and held them down. And so they get here, they're like, I'm not going to be held down anymore. And I'm not going to hold anyone else down. I hope, Miles, that in the near future, you find so many of these opportunities that it terrifies you, Mm. as it has terrified me. Mm. Thank you. Yes, I love that so much. Again, I'm, I'm very aware that this may feel uncomfortable, but I just want to share something with you. I've talked to Hillary about it quite a bit, actually. Since the liturgist gathering, you drop in with me more often than I can explain to you. And one of the things that comes in when I'm being really still and really quiet, I feel, it's hard to explain, but I will feel, it almost will feel like a a weight on my heart. Hmm. And I'll feel this heavy weight Mm. and I'll cover you in so much love. And what pops in is like, oh, he doesn't know yet, yet. Mm. He doesn't know yet how good and how loved he is. And you will drop in and I will just hold you and send you so love and so much goodness and I'll think I wish he could be behind my eyes for just even if it was three seconds and see what I see Hmm. what I know to be true that I know that I know that I know to be true I have journal entries about you (laughs) you think I'm kidding I laughed I see you And I get to see a tiny glimpse, and it is so beautiful. It is so good. It is so lovely. And I feel so honored to get to 
sit and bask in your presence. And I, my hope and my prayer and my meditation for you is that that truth, you just bit by bit, let it start landing because mm-hmm. it is truth. My precious brother, it is truth. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, you feel you're really special to me because you're just really special. Thanks for being part of this and um, hopefully I'll get to see you on different terms. But, I, you know, I hope that a conversation like this becomes not something only reserved for a couch in a therapy office, but yeah. one in which we can humanize and have over and over again. And for those of us that reject attention, possibly in a means to get it, um, mm that we become a little bit softer with those that want to affirm us at a deeper level. Mm. Mm. And I'm not talking about you or me necessarily. We can lump us in if we want. I'm just, there's just so many people like us that struggle being seen at that level. And, and that's my hope is that one of them is listening. It's important work, this. Yeah. So. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing it. I mean, I feel like there's, you t- you spoke earlier of kind of the trendy vulnerability, but I hope underneath that is that folks like us are trying to live in a way that inspires people yeah. into a different way of being and living with others because it's, it's important and it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm deeply thankful for the work that you that you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. And and with your lives. If you'd be willing, and we gotta I know we gotta get you to your next meeting, but if you if you'd close us out with one word or one sentence, if you're open and you can decline. If not, it won't be an affirmation for us. We've we've done enough of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you would be willing to say one affirming thing that you know to be true about you. I love everybody. Mm. and we feel that (laughs) man thanks for seeing the unsaid thank you buddy it's such a gift thank you my pleasure make up fake love make them all laugh come on someone take off your mask it's nice to me thank y'all so much for being with us today We know your time is valuable, so it truly means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. And thank you for being willing and open to walk right into the tension of saying the unsaid. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and this song is called Alcatraz from their EP, Hallucinate. I cannot speak highly enough about these musicians and friends. Check out their beautiful music on Spotify and online. And a huge thank you to Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio who edit and mix the show. If you want to learn more about the Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and more information about the guest. And feel free to follow us on Instagram as well at the Unspoken Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe to keep getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to you. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
We can't wait to share with you all of the upcoming conversations with some really special people. And we hope these fill you with the hope that we might all find connection, healing, courage, and the strength to leave no important words unspoken.